This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello and welcome to The Thin Place, the film geek radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 13, Unlucky 13, for March 2012. The topic for this episode is Primary Colors, the 1998 film by Mike Nichols, based on the novel by Joe Klein and a screenplay by Elaine May, starring John Travolta and Emma Thompson. Your hosts for this episode are Ken Moorfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin. That's me. So, Todd, our go-to first question in a lot of previous podcasts seems to have been, what makes this particular film a good film to talk about from a Thin Place perspective? So... I'll let you start with that one since I did the introduction. Uh, why talk about primary colors from a faith or spirituality religion perspective? Well, it's a, it's an interesting film to talk about at this point. Um, it Primary colors, it's a film about the political process. Um, specifically, it follows a candidate and his team through the Democratic primary season um, of a presidential election. And, you know, so in that sense, certainly it's timely um, to be thinking about these issues. But in terms of a, a real spiritual aspect to this, this topic, one of the main stories in this film is a young political operative, um, Henry Burton, is this young, idealistic person, political, just getting into the political game. And... He jumps into the campaign because he really believes in the candidate. Yes. And um, he was working for another guy, and a friend of his father's comes and says, Hey, you got to watch this guy. And they do. And he's bowled over and says, Yes, I will, I will follow this candidate. And through the primary season... There is many. There are many, many ups, but then, you know, as they say, he begins to see how the sausage is made. Yes, and it's not pretty, and and in some very specific and painful ways, the candidate proves to have feet of clay, and he's not the perfect, you know, messiah for the party. You know, Henry has to make some choices. Um, he becomes disillusioned with the system, uh, with the candidate, and he has to make some choices about what he's going to do then. And in some you know, very specific and important ways, um, I think this film provides us a way to talk about just that idea of being disillusioned with a power structure, with a, a leader, um, that we may have, you know, really gone whole hog in supporting, and then we find, oh, 
this man is really just a man. Right. And, you know, from a spiritual perspective, what does that do for us in thinking of, you know, perhaps specific spiritual leaders we have had or the church itself? Um, yeah, that, that, that fall from idealism. Right. And, so what I hear you saying is that believing in religious leaders or even having faith in God is not the same thing as believing in political leaders. Uh, but there's enough of a parallel there where we can learn things by observing that process of faith and disillusionment right. and uh, how it operates on the political sphere that might give us some insights for religion. I, I would agree with that. Um, I would just add, too, that before we get into some specifics, I, I think Henry has to deal not only with his disillusionment in Governor Stanton, who's the Bill Clinton character played by John Travolta, you know, not just realizing, oh, okay, I thought this guy was perfect and he's not. Uh, but he also has to deal with disillusionment in himself. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not only that he has to compromise in what he'll accept from uh, Stanton, he also realizes that he himself has made compromises to stay in the game, uh, one of them dealing with um, you know, what he allows himself to do in terms of covering up uh, some of the governor's uh, bad dealings. He has to go deal with the young black woman who claims the governor got her pregnant, and uh, there's that sort of classic scene, movie trope of moral repulsion where after he does something that he finds very distasteful, he pulls over to the side of the road and uh, throws up to show that he's literally made ill by some of the stuff that he's done. Uh, so it's not just dealing with one's disillusionment in other people, but also the loss of idealism of what would I ever, you know, right. what would I do or right. uh, what would I accept? You had mentioned that, that Henry really believes that that's part of, while well, he's working for a local candidate and going on the local stage, uh, part of it's not just that he's seduced all of the Ides of March with power or a bigger stage, uh, but that also that he's seduced by the notion that, hey, maybe this guy is the real deal. I can think of a couple of specific scenes where we really see what it is that attracts Henry to the Stanton character. Did any specific scenes stand out for you? Well, there, there's certainly the, there's kind of this great set piece where the governor is going to an adult literacy program. Mm -hmm. And the, the event is for these people to tell him their stories of how they have gone to, you know, gone to this literacy center and learned how to read as adults. And, after they all share their stories, the governor goes into this very emotional uh, story about his uncle and the, you know, this famous uncle that we begin to see is an amazing guy who has done just about everything in the world. <laughs> um, but he, he really says, you know, he, he, he tells this story about his uncle who never learned to read because he was too proud and didn't have the courage. Um, and then he turns it around and says, you people have this courage and you, you inspire me. And by the end of it, everybody's weeping. And But it, it, there's a sincerity there. And, and Henry sees this event happening and he's just bowled over by, this guy really cares right. about regular people, not just the trappings of power, not just 
I want to be president, but I care about people. Right. That's a good scene. I also certainly think there's another set piece where the Stan character is giving a job in or giving a speech in Michigan at a closed. I think it's in Michigan mm-hmm. it maybe New Hampshire, but it's a closed down uh, factory or plant. And he says, I'm going to tell the truth. Uh, the fact of the matter is in a post, you know, post industrial world, labor jobs go where labor is cheap and that's never going to be here. So, you know, these jobs are not coming back. I can't promise you that the factory is ever coming back. Here's what we can do. And one of the handlers says, oh, he's lost them, you know. And Henry says, well, bleep them, meaning the audience. He's got me. Uh, That Mm -hmm. is to say, by speaking an unpopular truth, I I will admire him. Uh, there's another scene where Henry is talking with his former girlfriend, who's part works for a small paper called The Black Advocate, and the girl is questioning him about how much do you really know about this guy. Says, you know, do you really? She says, do you really want to work for this guy? And he says, no, I want to, you know, work for someone who is, you know, purer than driven snow. But then loses the election to uh, a Republican and watch them take office. And she says, well, do you really know the difference? And he's, he claims, yes, I know the difference. I can tell the difference between someone who really cares about the things that I care about and has to lie and fudge the truth a little bit in order to get elected because that's how the process works mm-hmm. and that's what you have to do. And really tell the difference between someone who you know just doesn't care. And I would rather have the liar. I would rather have someone who will lie a little or cheat a little or play foul in order to get into power. But once he's in power, we'll use that power for, for good ends. And I think that's that's a devil's bargain that, that Henry struggles with throughout the As I was say, that, that certainly comes back by the end of the film to where he actually really does have to make that choice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who... What kind of compromises is he going to make? Um, I'm thinking specifically after they, there's another candidate who has kind of come out of nowhere and they find some dirt on him. And, you know, the big question is, are we going to use the dirt? Right. And, you know, after Governor Stanton and Henry go talk to the candidate, um, Governor Picker. Pickering, yeah. Played by Larry Hagman. Larry Hagman. Wonderful role. Oh, fantastic. And as they're walking away, Henry's like, I'm, I quit. I quit. Then, you know, he and Stanton have this conversation really about what you just said. It's, mm-hmm. you know, who do you want to you know, be there? And right. Who's going to care about the people that you care about as much as me? Yes, I made a mistake here. Right. But eventually I realized the mistake and I tried to correct it. Who, who's going to do as much as I can? Yeah. And, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a real difficulty. Um, and, and in fact, that's one of the things I love about this movie is that it's a very quotable movie. It's got a yes. lot of great dialogue and, and Le May screenplay. Uh, but that's the scene where, where Henry gives the classic line of, I'm not comparing the players. I don't like the game. Exactly. You know? And, uh, but then he also has to realize that um, that's a somewhat naive statement. You know, and another one of the, the famous... Uh, quotable lines is when uh, people, one of the other candidates is trying to forge a tape for 
Jack Stanton and Henry realizes it's forged, but he can't prove it. Uh, and um, he's kind of railing against the unfairness of that. And he says, well, they can't get away with it. This can't be a world in <laughs> which they get away with it. Uh, and Kathy Bates' character, uh, Libby, played by Kathy Bates, kind of looks at him and says, imagine a young black man <laughs> saying that in 1980. What a sheltered life you must have led to really believe that, you know, the right always prevails or the most honest right. way is always the most efficient way. And, you know, that's one of the little steps of the compromise is, well, okay, I'm willing to compromise in order to protect him from what I know is a lie uh, even though I know that he didn't do, even though maybe he didn't do this particular thing, he has done other things, right. uh, but I'm willing to play hardball or to play dirty or to lie or to cheat or to manipulate the process as long as I know he's innocent of this particular charge. And then what we find in Primary Colors is that same moral arc that we find with the Godfather, that each little bite or con that a compromise takes out of your idealism, eventually you're left with, um, do I have any ideals left? Does it, you know, does it really matter? And, and one of the things that really you know, makes this film, Primary Colors, so interesting in that, that examination of you know, idealism versus the quote-unquote real world mm -hmm. and compromise is that we have all, a whole range of characters operating in a whole range of reactions um, to this system, this game mm -hmm. that, that Henry doesn't like. You know, you've got uh, Billy Bob Thornton plays this veteran um, political operative. And, and he's based on James Carville. He's, yes. he's the James Carville yeah, character. And, and he is just the, the quintessential cynical political operative who's like, yes, this is a total game and we will do whatever it takes to win. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that is certainly one reaction to this kind of a system. Right. The classic example of that is when uh, they're discussing the governor's womanizing and the, um, the one character played by Maura Turney says, well, they said that Hitler never looked at another woman besides Eva Braun. Uh, so what's the difference between, you know, uh, some people that were really great and did good work, like Kennedy or uh, I don't remember if she says Roosevelt, uh, but that we wish we had worked for but didn't do that. And this person who was really, you know, ostensibly very good in this one area but was, was repugnant. And Billy Bob Thornton says, yeah, but that's not the line we're going to give to the press. Is right. You know, that's um, – yeah, so you've, you've got that operative. You've, you've got the Kathy Bates character, Libby Holden, who is just has been an idealist, is an idealist. Um, she, she sees the, the problems mm -hmm. and, and is still holding on to this, this vision of the past. And in the end, drives her to suicide. Mm -hmm. she, she cannot live with you know, the tension anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you've got uh, Governor Stanton's wife, um, played by Emma Thompson, who, at least the way I see her, by the end of it, she has totally just become this almost inhuman character. Mm -hmm. She has no feelings left. Um, because of having to put up with so many things, she just has totally shut down emotionally and is just, will do whatever it takes to win. Um, but in a different way than the Billy Bob Thornton character. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for, for her, it is a life and death matter, and it, 
she is just cold stone, you know, ruthless. Well, she she certainly deals with the personal costs of his behavior, mm-hmm. but seems to deal with it by, by shutting totally down. compartmentalizing mm-hmm. the political and, and you know and the moral. She can you know slap his face and say how could you in one scene, and then hold his hand for the cameras in the you next. know in the next scene. Because in some ways she really believes, and I, to a certain extent, you have the governor himself right. who realizes his own moral failings. He is not, you know, he's not kidding himself. He's not deluding no. himself uh, that he is morally perfect, but uh, but who does genuinely seem to care mm-hmm. about the guy and the donut shop, right. the you know, uh, the people on the line and generally wants to do something for them and you know seems somewhat befuddled or naive about you know what i have to do or what i not have to do in order to get into a place where i can actually you know help some of these people so in the midst of this big range we've got henry who's trying to navigate you know and figure out what is his response going Mm -hmm. to be and I, and I think it's a very real place for many people who, especially as we get older and we see how the world works, you know, where, you know, where are we going to be on this continuum? Mm-hmm. Um, how are we going to deal with leaders who fail us and, and the institutions in which, in institutions that fail us, perhaps? Yeah. How do we deal with our own idealism uh, or our own pragmatism. Um, I, I certainly think the film came out in 1998, which means I would have been 32, which, uh, you know, is right about that age where people say if you're not, you know, if you're not a, a, a liberal or a radical when you're under 30, then there's something wrong with you. And if you're not a you know, more conservative when you're over 30, there's something wrong with you. And, you know, that is where you really start to become aware of the complexity of the world. Mm-hmm. And you, you start um, really, at least in my case, despairing of whether or not it's even possible to be idealistic. Uh, because you understand, I think, when you're younger in an abstract way that, yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. Right. No one is righteous. No, not one. Uh, but there's still that part of your mind that, that says, yeah, I understand that no one's perfect, but but that's a very different thing than no one can withstand the kind of scrutiny that, that we right. now have. Um, you know, or could stand up under that. So it feels like it may not be true that the leaders that we have to accept are worse than morally, are more morally bankrupt or failed or compromised than the leaders in the past or the human beings in the past. But it feels like that, right. or, you know, or it feels like that way. Uh, you know, it feels that way to me. I think that um, that's expressed to me in in the famous speech where, uh, he's just met the governor, and he's talking to Mrs. Stanton, and she says, why are you here? And he talks a little bit about, you know, well, I got tired of losing, <laughs> and you know, sticking up for ideals and, and losing. Uh, but he says, you know, he expresses a longing that on our core, we've inherited a world that it's very easy to be cynical about, and maybe even a world that sort of says, oh, it's cool, and it's chic to be cynical but really, at a core, we're hardwired for hope and idealism. Mm-hmm. And, and he says, 
you all, meaning the governor and his wife, you had Kennedy, and I understand abstractly that he was corrupt, but he was the last person I could listen to use words like duty and sacrifice and not hear a little voice inside my head going, bullshit, bullshit. This, you know, that's just what he's right. saying because it's tested well, you know, or that speech is there. And he says, maybe it was bullshit with Kennedy too. You know, maybe it was, but at least then there was something about him that felt like you could get behind him or that there was enough there that you could believe in. Right. That it wasn't just this, you know, the cynical part saying, okay, there's a part of my cynicism that says a part of it is playing the game, but it isn't all the game. There's there's some part of it that's not the game. Sure. And it just seems like in the modern world what he's getting at is that there's no part that's not the game. All that we're left mm-hmm. with is just the, you know, is just the game. And then there really is nothing to choose from uh, between one candidate and the other except for how well they deliver their sound bites because there's no assumption that their sound bites are really connected to their ideology mm-hmm. or their platform or their beliefs or what they actually think. It's just, um, it's just kind of a performance. Mm-hmm. Something where, you know, how I initially responded to the film and upon revisiting it uh, more recently, I, I think the thing that really struck me is that the film didn't seem to me to be dated in the way that a documentary would like this this wasn't about clinton right you know this was about a timeless theme that was mediated or filtered through one person's observation of the clinton campaign mm-hmm. uh but it seemed very timely to me did it you know did it seem, you well, recently revisited the film right. within the last few months did it seem oh absolutely <laughs> to I, hold up I, I think you know one, one of the genius moves that Joe Klein made was instead of making this a documentary mm-hmm. um, or making it a, you know a non book is creating this sort of fictional character that you know certainly given when it was published and some of the characteristics of the of Governor Stanton mm-hmm. you say yes this is obviously based on Bill Clinton. But it's removed enough that it could be anybody. It could be any candidate. It doesn't have to be a Democrat. It doesn't have to be a Republican. Um, it, it, it's there. And I think especially you know this year, as we are going through the primary season and heading towards a presidential election, uh, there are certain things about it that just really jump out. Um, you know, that, that idea about you know, sincerity, you know, are these just sound bites well delivered or is there some connection? Um, I'm also just continually reminded um, when Governor Picker comes in and um, basically the other big name candidate had dropped over dead um, in a kind of a humorous scene, actually. Um, But he comes to kind of take over and there's this great speech where he's at a big rally and he basically says, hey, everybody, calm down, Mm -hmm. you know. Everyone's here getting all excited, and that's what the press is here to do. They're there to get you excited, and it's all all that excitement is there to make sure that you don't pay attention to the real issues and to think. You know, just get the emotions riled up. That's what all this is for. And, and you know, I think as we go into the season, that's never been more true. Right. Um, and that also gets me thinking, though, about not just elections, not just the political realm, but also in the religious 
spiritual realm in various you know churches and things. I mean, for me, it's a very very personal film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a film that helped me process some very difficult disillusionments. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in some ways, it's because it gave me a language. It gave me a grammar. You know, I said, "Oh, which character am I? Am I right now?" Right. And, and for me, it was always, you know, "Am I Libby or Henry?" Yeah, and yeah, you know, which was also a little scary since Libby ends up shooting herself in the head. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, "Whoa, <laughs> um, you know, where am I headed here?" Yeah, but you know, it, metaphorically speaking. That's like, would I rather be idealistic and perpetually disappointed? Right. Or, you know, would I rather, you know, be effective and pragmatic? And can I live with myself with, right. with the compromises that I and, make? And what compromises know? do I have to make? Yeah. And, and, and I think it's a very valuable, you know, tool in that sense. I mean, this, this is why I think one of those, you know, in terms of good art. Mm-hmm. You know, that gives us a way to, well, Madeline Lengel talks about good art is art that makes cosmos out of chaos. Right. And it takes order, you know, brings order to, to chaos. And at least for me, certainly, this film does that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it helps me. It, it doesn't give me an order. It provides a, an avenue for me to create the order. Uh, by giving me a language to talk about this kind of disillusionment in leaders, disillusionment in in, in systems. I, I like your comment that it's a personal film because I've been thinking a lot about film criticism, uh, you know, which I do professionally now. And I've commented several times that very few people actually do formalist film criticism, mm-hmm. you know, formal film criticism. That most of it is is really looking at you know, one's own response and sharing one's own mm-hmm. personal response. But I do think the more effective um, film critic, one mode, is the one who is able to look critically or at least curiously at one's own response and say, well, what is it about that mm-hmm. that, that prompted that response in me? Right. Particularly if the response is somewhat surprising. And I was very much surprised in in watching this movie in just how moved I was, you know, and just mm-hmm. how how deeply I felt Henry's frustration at being disillusioned, <laughs> at being let down, at wondering, is there anything left in this postmodern world to believe in? Right. And, you know, will do I have the courage to let myself believe in something in anything else? Um, knowing that I will be perpetually hurt or disappointed mm. because people always let us down, or will I crawl into my shell of cynicism and say, "Fine, you're never going to hurt me again because um, you know I won't let you because I won't mm. you know won't believe in that." I wanted to give a quick shout out to this kind of a change of, of subject, but I know you haven't. I don't think you've watched the recent HBO Game Change film. I have not. Uh, I, I happened to catch it because I was at a hotel that had HBO when it premiered. And another reason, certainly, that I wanted to do primary colors is without doing a whole, you know, point by point. I think there are a lot of corollaries. I, I think mm. both of the films, even though one is based on a real life book that doesn't change the names, uh, Palin McCain, uh, both of them center on the handlers rather than the candidates mm-hmm. themselves. Uh, the game changes ostensibly about Sarah Palin, but it's really about Steve Schmidt, you know, the handler played by 
the campaign manager played by uh, Woody Harrelson. And it's really, it struck me how much watching the film, it was about the same questions. You, you know, how much am I willing to look past the what I perceive to be the personal flaws or faults in order for what I perceive to be a greater good. Right. Uh, now, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding the film about, like, you know, were those flaws real? Was it the hatchet job? And I'm less interested in how accurate they were mm-hmm. because I'm, you know, I have my own opinions about Palin or McCain or Clinton uh, than I am about how, you know, 12, 14 years apart, a, you know, a Democrat or a Republican character, we still have... Um, two stories about uh, people who were eaten up by participating in the political process and saying, you know, it just forces you to make compromises um, because, uh, again, whether or not he's being truthful or not, the film represents Schmidt as not thinking that Palin was ready to be president, of not thinking mm-hmm. uh, that she was what he thought, uh, but saying, oh, okay, you know, in my ideal self, I really can't support this woman, but pragmatically, I have to for the greater good. You know, I think just better than, than Barack Obama. And I think that's expressed by a speechwriter played by um, Sarah Paulson, who hmm. tearfully confesses to Steve Schmidt on Election Day, I couldn't vote. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I just couldn't, you know. And there's a weird sort of disconnect in there, which is to say, I'm pouring my professional life or energy, you know, I'm doing my job, but my job is something that I don't believe in, that mm-hmm. I, you know, and, and that resonated very strongly with the test is, if I had a kid, would I want him to go to my school, you, you know? Right. Um, and fortunately, I feel very fortunate that now I can say yes. I haven't always been able to, you know, mm-hmm. to say that. Um, but I could very much, even though I've never been in a political campaign, relate to that that real sort of pain or agony of I have invested a lot of my personal professional energy in this industry, in this candidate, in this job, and now I'm realizing, wow, I don't believe in what I'm working for, and yet it's very scary to quit. Can I get another job? Right. You know, can I get another job? And will the next job be any better or will I end up being disillusioned and, you know? Yeah, certainly. I mean, early or in my life, I worked at a, a web company, a, a coupon company. Mm-hmm. And toward the end, you know, and, and thankfully I had, you know, a, a very nice exit to a different thing. But toward the end, there, there was this definite part of me that says I'm working 40, 50 hours a week, you know, putting all of this creative energy that I have into coupons. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, that, that, that's a rather benign, you know, thing, but it was still that, you know, this, this question of, you know, I can't stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, I need to put food on the table. And certainly at least in that, on that sense, there was a good in terms of, you know, I'm feeding my family, I'm providing benefits, that sort of thing. But on the other hand, yeah, what, what is the larger thing that I'm, I'm doing? And, you know, and, and how much longer can I do this without it damaging who I am? Right. I've always struggled because I live in, you know, I work in Christian education that gives a lot of talk to the concept of vocation. You know, your work is from God and you're doing God's right. work, even if it's 
from a holistic perspective that says there's not just Christian work and non-Christian work, that there ought to be a way of, you know, doing Christian sure. work and whatever you're doing. Um, but really that, that notion between, for most of my life, I haven't really looked at my job, you know, even teaching as a vocation, but I realized through reading Ecclesiastes or something like that, that it's okay to have a job, you know, to treat your job as a job. The purpose of this is to provide money to put on my table so that I can be free to do other things. Do, yeah. Do the Lord's work or, you know, pursue my passion or, or whatnot. Um, and I think really then where, where I've tried to make that compromise is to say I'm never going to find a totally idealistic job where I believe 100% in everything that they're doing. Um, but the difference is, is like, are they doing damage? You know, are they right. doing damage? Is it, it's kind of like that physician, first do no harm. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, am I doing any harm uh, through supporting this? If I'm not necessarily helping anything, are there better things I can help everything? Well, the fact that someone values it enough to pay me to do it is enough for me, as long as I'm not really doing any harm. Sure. And, and I think, you know, in some ways, uh, primary colors, game change, takes that very human conundrum that we all face and ups the ante because if you're you know putting someone in president they have a lot of power they have a lot of influence and it becomes much harder to say well are they doing any harm will they do any harm right. do i know you know do i know and how how can you know yes and and i, I think one of the, the the things that henry comes to by the end um and, and the, the the great confrontation between henry and governor stanton um, and I think maybe where the film comes out, and, it, and it, it's a it's an answer that has some resonance to me as well. It's not just doing no harm, but is the intention of the person is, is it somebody who actually cares about doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. um, now they may fail, mm -hmm. they may you know their own personal foibles may hamstring them, whatever. But is their intention right? Do they care about doing the right thing? Right. Um, and, and certainly I, I've worked for different organizations that have had different answers to that. And, and there is this, a big difference, you know, when you're working for a place that really doesn't care mm -hmm. about what's best or what's right or doing things the right way, that has a different feel to it. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's one of the ways I think Henry gets around, right. um, to being able to to continue working for the governor. Right. There's a wonderful quote in my commonplace book from George MacDonald where he says, if then we go wrong, it will be in the direction of the right. And mm -hmm. in such a way that is easier to correct than refusing to do anything. It's not the exact rest right. of the quote. Um, but I think, yeah, what you've articulated is that idea then of we're always going to go wrong, but are we going wrong in the direction of the right? Are we going wrong uh, through a failure of execution or will or, you know, is it a larger failure to identify the good and, and mm -hmm. to try to do it? Um, and now, again, that's I, I'm saying I agree with you as a work of art in, in terms of what that's saying to other people. Uh, and as where Henry comes out about the Jack Stanton character, I'm not saying that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, make anyone's judgment about Clinton and whether he was that way. Because one of the th things that's both primary colors and game change, I think, are very savvy about in the modern world um, that really resonates with me is that they're both very savvy about the media. And I would add Ides of March to that as well. Okay. 
um, that they're both very savvy about the media because there's so much media coverage, so many endless debates. We see these people on TV. We hear their words so often. We really are, are hurt by what John Updike once called the false intimacy of television, you know, that we see these people so much and we, I was going to say interact, but don't interact. Right. We are in their presence so much that, that we adopt this illusion that we think we know them and, and we don't. Right. You know, and if I can shift the game change for a second there, I think one of the, the biggest faults of the movie uh, was that it focuses only on the Sarah Palin character, whereas the, the book game change focuses on the whole 2008 mm. campaign. And one of the places where it makes that point is about John Edwards's campaign and just how different the John Edwards character behind the scenes and what we came to learn about him and what he was going through right. at that time was from the John Edwards that I thought that I do from, you know, watching on right. TV and giving speeches and saying, oh, there's someone that I can really, you know, believe in. Um, and yet because of that human hardwiredness, we really want to believe it. Um, we can tell ourselves over and over again, yes, I'm seeing this person at their best. I'm seeing their talking points. I don't really know what that person is. Right. Um, but over and over again, you know, what we learn is that the, the media distorts and manipulates the political process um, in such a way that really is designed to make us think that we know a lot about these people and, and you know, we just, you know, we just don't. I think, you know, I think all three of the politics films that I've mentioned are, are very truthful and very on mm -hmm. point about that. But, you know, we don't like that because that's scary. Right. You know, it's scary to think like I have this privilege of voting for president, this power of great prestige. Well, you know, if I can't vote on that, what can I? You know, it's, it's yeah, if I can't trust the image that I am presented with. What can I possibly base my decision on? Right, you know, I, you know, somehow or another, I want those idealized days of 1860 where Lincoln and Douglas, <laughs> you know, will have these six-hour debates in which right. they will, you know, go through and talk and I can pour, you know, through the record, um, or that we've got a press like Marge and the Black Advocate who will do the hard work of vetting rather than just. Uh, Repeating what's on. Repeat the soundbite questions in, in order for, for higher ratings. Uh, but there's something that's really actually very scary um, about the film that actually resonates with me is that feeling like, wow, um, you know, I, I do have this privilege and I want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to do the right thing. Um, but increasingly in a media age, it's like... How do you know? How, you know, how do you know? I, I, you know, because the portion that we see is so small and, and, and so controlled that, you know, at the end, Henry has seen a better glimpse of the governor than just about anyone that's not in his family. And even he doesn't know right. if he's done, the, <laughs> you know, he's done the right thing. So how can he, you know, what hope do any, any of us have? And, and I, I want to believe and I need to believe that idealist in me that we're not just throwing darts at crossing our fingers and praying and hoping uh, that it's the right thing. But there's that fear I just on my neck of, sure. you know, every time I go in to pull the lever, 
you know, even if I know who I'm going to vote for, there's that little bit of fear. There's that little bit of terror, like, you know, oh my gosh, what am I really doing? <laughs> right. And it, 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 the comfort I find always comes back to, you know, that, that idea in scripture that all power on earth is granted by God. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember at, at various points in my life that has kind of gone in different directions. Right. Um, I mean, I, I remember when Clinton was elected the first time and it was almost as though that someone had died. Mm -hmm. um, the, the church I was going to, an evangelical church, and it was as though somebody had just shot somebody. Mm -hmm. And it was like this death pawn. I kept thinking, well, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we believe, if we believe what we say we believe, mm -hmm. then this was meant to be. Right. Um, on the other hand, when there was other people in the White House that I didn't care for, um, and I, I mean, I wasn't a huge Clinton supporter, but, you know, and later I had to, it was kind of the opposite when there was someone I, you know, really didn't like what was going on. I had to remind myself, well, wait a minute, mm -hmm. you know, if it, if it, if it counts for what you said back then, it's got to count now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that there is that something that I, I, I have to fall back on in faith. Right. Um, although I, I'm with you, I, it, it is a scary thing to, you know, that's the part of a democracy that is frightening is we are in charge. Yeah. Um, I guess I fall back on that George McDonald quote that if I go wrong and who I vote for, you're going it'll in the, right be direction. the direction of the ride. And you said, you know, you care. I'll fail. But was I trying to do right? Was I yeah. trying to discern, you know, who was a person of integrity, who was, you know, really going to do the right thing or wanting to do mm -hmm. the right thing. And then, you know, if I was fooled or, or, or whatnot, then I just have to have that faith that it'll be in such a way that it's easier to correct that than never believing in anything or right. never, you know, never even trying or throwing up your hands, um, you know, and saying, well, I can't know. So, you, you know, what's the point? So, yeah, I, I, I think that's a good message. All righty. Well, uh, any final thoughts about Primary Colors? Uh, um, only that it really is a fantastic film, has a has a a wonderful cast that, you know, turn in some great performances. So, you know, apart from all of these, you know, heavy weighty things, um, it's a really good movie to watch. Mm -hmm. um, well made, well written, well acted. And, you know, I enthusiastically support it. Okay. On that note, we will segue to the conclusion. If you have thoughts, comments, or questions about this podcast, you're welcome to email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ken Moorefield, Twitter backslash Ken Moorefield, or read my reviews at the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!